Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Today we get to talk once again with my friend Jennifer Finlayson Fife. We're going to talk a little bit about masculine sexual shame, which is something years ago that was never even really researched or studied or thought to be a necessary problem or experience for men. So Jennifer, as we get started, I know a lot of my listeners know you already, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now and how things are going? Sure. Let's see. So I'm, I did a course actually on this. So I'm a therapist. I do a lot of teaching and coaching of couples around self-development and sexual development. And I started with my dissertation research on LDS women's experience of sexual shame. I mean, that's not the way I posed the question, but it was really looking at this question of of agency and how free women felt to be sexual in marriage and so on. So my initial focus of my work was very much around LDS women's experiences around sexuality because they're more overtly challenged mm-hmm. often. But as I kept doing work with couples, I started realizing more and more like men are struggling in their own way, even if they're often presenting as the higher desire person, it doesn't mean they're reconciled or at peace with their sexuality. And often men struggling in sexuality would drive some of these desire differences. What I mean is men and women would often get polarized in desire differences because they were both struggling with the question of whether or not sexuality is okay. So as I became aware of that more through my work, I decided to do a men's course for LDS men called The Art of Loving, in which I'm really helping men on the same questions of how to think about themselves, how to think about sexuality, and what it means to create goodness with sexuality. And it's been a very well-received course because it's been such an unarticulated need, Mm -hmm. I think, that sometimes gets expressed through pornography or compulsive behaviors or just difficulty addressing a struggling sexual relationship, but it doesn't often be get articulated as a difficulty with being at peace with one's sexuality as a man. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I was um, in preparing for this. I was reading, and the research says there really isn't much said about this because mm-hmm. historically we really haven't felt that men even had shame around their sexuality. So I know you right. work largely with LDS couples. So do I. And so mm-hmm. obviously, then with culturally versus church culturally, where are we equally as shameful or? Are men in the world as uncomfortable and not at peace with their sexuality really wholeheartedly as men within the church are, do you think? That's a really good question. I mean, I remember being in high school and I went on a study abroad with all non-LDS, you know, students. Mm-hmm. And the the boys spent the entire time talking about sex, like all about bravado and like how, and just to an annoying degree. Yes. <laughs> and then our... Uh, we were suddenly found ourselves on a nude beach, a European nude beach (laughs) that none of us had expected. Mm -hmm. And these guys that had been talking with so much confidence, quote unquote, 
were suddenly like, let's get out of here. Like they were clearly uncomfortable. They, they certainly didn't want to strip down. you know. <laughs> and so it kind of is exposing that, you know, there was an incongruity between the pretense of confidence. And I think that men are largely, even men that are low desire are a pressure to act as if that's mm-hmm, not the case mm-hmm. because it's somehow a challenge to masculinity. So men certainly need to act like they're comfortable with right, sexuality, right. say I'm a real man. I think what I don't know about in terms of parity between non-LDS and LDS is I, I think because we believe in the importance of constraining our sexual choices to save them for marriage that even though men understand that sexuality is kind of congruent with masculine in our culture, that it's like maybe more acceptable than sexuality or sexual desire with feminine, that there's still this overarching fear that it will it will divorce you from God, from goodness. Mm-hmm. You know, men are often, re- even though we make sexual desire okay for men, we still talk to men as if they're doing something to a woman or that there is a a chance of being predatory. And I think a lot of good men are afraid of that. They don't want to be destructive with their sexuality. And so in a way, they have this power that's kind of given to them culturally, but it's also a destructive power, or it certainly can be. And not knowing how to handle that makes a lot of men just try to make their wife validated or step away from it altogether, or feel guilt about sexual feeling in general. Mm. So interesting because the population I largely work with is BYU students that are transitioning into marriage. I do a lot of honeymoon workshops, premarital counseling sexually. Mm. And there is such a fear that my inexperience is going to make this experience for both of us terrible. Negative, yes. Because I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. I know. It's crazy we do that to men. Yeah, really. (laughs) How are they supposed to know? (laughs) But we, you know, because, well, when we say you're the ones, you know, you're naturally sexual and so on, you're supposed to lead me, female, into my sexuality. You're supposed to make it okay. You're supposed to give me pleasure. And, And of course, there's problems with that for women because it kind of strips them of agency Mm -hmm. and it makes them feel like their sexuality isn't legitimate in its own right. But of course it's problematic for men who have to pretend to know things they don't know. And as soon as you introduce, and and women often in my research, they had to pretend they were more clueless than they actually were. (laughs) Because (laughs) they didn't want, (laughs) oh yeah, they wanted to not threaten his sense of Uh knowing what's going on. Or like if she'd had any experiences, wasn't that sort of a challenge to his sense of exclusivity with her or something Mm -hmm. like that. So there's a lot of pretense right out of the gate often in the way that we talk about what it is to be a proper man or a proper woman. And that always is a problem because it interferes with collaboration and partnership and how do we do this? It also interferes with personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I say to women often, you know, you're responsible for your own pleasure. You're Mm -hmm. responsible for knowing your body and you can teach him, but you start with that. Right. Exactly Mm -hmm. right. So with how do we dissipate the roles that we feel we're coming into marriage that we are supposed to be fulfilling? Well, I, I first of all think we're doing 
a good job of beginning culturally to challenge these. You know, I finally spent a few hours with your book last night and it's lovely. It's oh, really thank wonderful. you. I'm glad. Yeah, it's just great. It's such an excellent resource. And, you know, just part of what you're setting up is this partnership idea, like not, you know, you're setting it up as, as the two are working together. And that's just different than a cultural norm of a few decades ago, which was very much this kind of archetype of the masculine mm -hmm. knowing and leading and showing the way. So just starting to challenge that assumption and valuing women's pleasure and valuing them as equals can alleviate some of this anxiety and pretense that men feel like I don't, if she's my partner and she can tell me if she likes something or doesn't, or she's not going to let me hurt her, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. she will speak up mm -hmm. <laughs> that then I can have more confidence, not of just being insensitive and doing whatever I want, but like that we can work together, that it's not just all riding on my shoulders and can start to bridge this sort of true belief in the equality of masculine and feminine, the equality of partnerships, because it has to play itself out in that way. Now, I suppose if there is a risk for men, it's that they are capable of being predatory. Certainly people can use sexuality to be destructive. And when it happens, it's a very bad thing. But I think the more that we point away from roles and more towards living in a truthful, principled way, that we actually increase the freedom and connection through sexuality. So we actually create the ability to do good with it. Mm -hmm. So well said. Mm -hmm. I hope what the podcast in and of itself is helping people do is to align and come wholeheartedly knowing who they are, what they want, what they're striving for, and being able to yes. communicate that fairly in a relationship. Yeah, exactly. So, so tell me a little bit about, I think there are more men, maybe I'm wrong, um, I haven't really looked at the research, uh, but it seems like there's more of a performance anxiety for men than there is for women. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Because first of all, women don't really necessarily think they have. What I mean is usually the way that we think about sexuality is man is actor and woman is acted right, upon. Right. Now this has problems, okay. But there's also a kind of physical reality of this, that women are often in the receptive mm -hmm. position. Really, I mean, here's the gift of sexuality, if a woman can receive it, is that you get to be blessed sexually. <laughs> you get to be given to when you're in that position. And it's a wonderful position, one that a lot of men would like more of actually, <laughs> mm -hmm. to be able to surrender into pleasure. But it does put more of the enacting on the masculine role usually. And when you have that coupled with the idea that that's connected to proving you're a man. Mm -hmm. So a lot of men, for example, start to have erectile dysfunction right. issues as they get older. And I think it's Barry McCarthy who did some research that showed that men tended to then be the ones who would stop sexual interaction altogether in their 60s, not women, because their bodies were not performing like they had and it felt humiliating to them, mm -hmm. which is really quite sad, not just for the woman and the couple, but for the man himself, that there's no room for him to be just human, right. to be vulnerable, to be aging, to trust the partnership enough that he can bring a vulnerable self in a way into partnership and trust that it's going to be okay. So 
because men often are living in that performative anxiety, masculinity is something you always have to earn in a way in our immature society that it makes it so it can be often very hard to be real without not without feeling emasculated. Right. Mm-hmm. There's so much tied up into the function of the penis and masculinity that yeah. you they men don't have control over what's going to happen here. Yes. And yet so much of what they believe about themselves sexually is just right on this one organ. Yeah, yeah. Well, not to mention that when you load anxiety onto sexual performance, mm-hmm. sexual functioning goes down. Right. So if you're afraid of erectile, so I had a client who in his like late thirties had started having, well, had one time where his body did not respond and he was so terrified of that fact. And it was so disruptive that then it happened again in mm-hmm. short order mm-hmm. because he was anticipating and fearing it might happen. And so he was actually starting this sort of psychological pattern, which is sometimes what happens with women in pain and intercourse, is that, you know, you start mm-hmm. to actually, the fear interferes with working with the body right. and working in the relationship. But, you know, our sexuality often reveals our underdeveloped selves. And so we can use <laughs> them to, <laughs> I just, to grow into more <laughs> self-acceptance. Yeah. I love the way you say things so much, Jennifer. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're what I've noticed with more middle aged couples that I've worked with is that when a man has some erectile dysfunction, often a mm. woman is telling herself, it's me. I'm not attractive yes. enough anymore. And then Absolutely. this cycle just goes nuts. Oh, hundred percent. And then he can track that she feels rejected. He's trying to prove to her he doesn't reject her, which makes him more anxious which makes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so it's really true. I mean, it's really true that, that this can then kill her desire, you know, and so it can be a tricky spiral. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is anxiety is so contagious in couples and trying to settle yourself down is a tremendous gift to the couple, to the other person, but can be really ha- tricky when you can tell they're struggling in the meaning also. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. I know that pornography, especially for religious individuals who are viewing pornography, creates a lot of shame. Often they believe that the porn that they're viewing or the habit that they have is much worse than it actually is because of their religious backgrounds. Fears. I mean, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I can we talk a little bit about how porn and masturbation is really impacting sexual shame in a marriage? Sure. There's so much to say there. I know. I know. You know, one of the things I often am trying to do in in talking to men and women about pornography is just normalize a little more. Not because I'm pro-porn, which I've sometimes had people say I am or think I am or misunderstand me. But more that I am anti-shame, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, or just like, like it, you know. Or I sometimes tell the story that, like, when I was ten years old, my father had a book on the top shelf, "The Naked Communist," and I took my life into my hands <laughs> to get that book <laughs> to see if there were any naked communists inside, and there were none. Anyway, <laughs> well, it turns out several of my siblings did the same thing. I oh, found out later. So interesting. that is to say that it's normal to be curious and to find the body arousing. But when we when we load it down with this feeling that that makes me defective, sinful, wrong, 
Well, we, we take it to a level that actually interferes with our ability to handle our impulses, our curiosities, our, Mm -hmm. you know, like so much of living life well is learning how to regulate in the face of different competing desires, feelings, impulses, and so on. And as we learn how to regulate and choose wisely, we actually increase our freedom and we, we get more able to make sexuality be a good part of our lives. So it's not that just being impulsive is, is a good thing, you know, or being indulgent is a good thing. But if we shame the fact of the desire or the fact of the draw, we then put people into a struggle between like this kind of, like I sometimes talk about in terms of food, either you become sort of anorexic or you become bulimic or a compulsive overeater because there's so much anxiety. So that's often happening. And what I would also just say is that a lot of times people are also, so there's a, the reason why this is such a big topic is there's a lot of reasons why someone might look at porn. Some of them are this kind of, I'm loathsome and horrible and it's a distortion. Other people are more in a position of, I'm going to do whatever I want in this marriage. And, and if I'm going to look at people, I'm going to look at them and I'm not going to be honest with you. And I'm going to look at women at work and whatever. I mean, like there, there, there's that too. So there is a spectrum of what's right. happening. Right. But Assuming that, you know, a lot of times people are looking for escapes from anxiety and porn is a way that they do it. An escape from life, an escape from the real other, an escape from an intimate relationship. And porn is a way to kind of find something easier, but that makes them feel bad about themselves. And, you know, I know people that have like, they choose porn over their willing partner. It feels more predictable. They have anger at their spouse. I'm not saying any of these things are mature or go well. Right, right. <laughs> but there, it can be really easy to do that. The effect that it often has on the wife, let's just talk about it stereotypically for a moment, because it doesn't seem to have as much effect if a woman's looking at porn mm-hmm. on a man. So it mm-hmm. does seem to be true statistics from research. But, but women then of course, often take this very personally, like, wait a minute, why would you rather look at this than be with me? Or even if he does like to be with her, why are you looking at women whose bodies look way better than mine do? And it creates a feeling of comp- competitiveness, of fear. Women have talked to me often about this idea, like if I let myself go, who's going to be standing vigilant on this whole thing? That is, if he's indulgent is porn. And I were to let myself go, wouldn't this whole ship go, you know, sink? (laughs) Wouldn't we, you know, crash into the ground here? So there is the, I'm not going to do anything that you saw in porn because it validates your porn use. That's the response. So it actually interferes with the partnership, creating something stronger. And then there's this idea like, I need to be standing guard. So because you've proven you don't handle your sexuality wisely, I can't step into mine. I have to stay on guard. And these just, you know, what ends up happening, like while they're very intuitive responses, what often happens is the behaviors get entrenched. Right. Right. So it's like, well, she's so rigid and anxious and it's hard to be there. And I know I shouldn't look, but it's an easier place to be. I'm not saying that's a justified position. I'm just saying it's a very typical way that couples navigate the way that their sense of self is challenged in an intimate partnership. Mm -hmm. And so even though it's normal to lean away into the validation 
or the safety, the perceived right. safety of not leaning in, it keeps couples from actually dealing with themselves and who they are and creating something better together. Mm. Yes. I, I think it's so interesting to observe my own shift through the years in my work. And, you know, 10 years ago, working with a couple with this issue, I think I would have handled it very different than I approach mm-hmm. it now. For me, mm. I think porn use over or compulsive eating or mm-hmm. whatever we're doing is really wrapped up into emotional regulation and yes, and the is. immaturity and unhealthy ways, immature and unhealthy ways that we choose to emotionally regulate. So in the last year or two, I've had more of my couples help each other learn to regulate in healthy ways together. Yes. And I've I've seen a lot more happiness, a lot mm. less shame and more of a, a, a teamwork mentality mm. rather than, you know, pulling into separate corners and, mm. um, you know, keeping you're the one that's at fault, you're too rigid, whatever, mm. but coming together and really helping one another in a teamwork effort to regulate emotions in healthy ways. Mm. And I yeah. just really like that approach so much better. Yeah. Well, it's, the very human thing, and when it's connected to porn, we get especially upset about it. But, you know, for example, I had a son in high school who was really struggling with some anxiety and depression, and how he would handle it is he'd go to video games, mm-hmm. which, of course, would make him more anxious and more depressed because right. when he would reemerge, he'd feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm not doing what I should be doing and so on. So, you know, it's it, we can do that with food. We can do that with spending. We can right. do that with screens. There's so many ways that we step away from the anxiety of our lives. And and I think when couples can, or individuals within a couple understand, like, I keep choosing the ease that comes from stepping away from difficulty, difficulty in the marriage, difficulty in my job, difficulty in in a place where I just feel challenged. You know, I mean, sometimes I'm working on something and I get stuck and I just like, no, oh, you know what? I'm just going to look at I'm just going to look at Instagram. <laughs> it just suddenly <laughs> seems like a great idea, you know, right. because it's an anxiety regulation right. thing. And so if we can understand that, right, and forgive each other for that inclination, right, instead of taking it so personally. Now, I'm not saying that, that it doesn't have impact or that it doesn't affect totally each, you know, both the person doing it and the people they're in relationship with. But to see it as such a human inclination and the more we step right into the headwinds, the stronger we get. Absolutely. So if we can embrace, like, step towards the difficult, step, you know, you know, when I'm exercising, if I can tell myself, don't think about when, how much longer till this ends, think about stepping into the, the intensity of it and embrace it, it actually gets easier and you get stronger. Right. So it's like, so I think if couples and individuals within couples better understand this, not as this makes me horrible, this just makes me a vulnerable human trying to handle a, a, a risky and difficult world and a relationship that can feel uncertain. And the way I'll get better at it is move towards it. Right. Right. That's going to be the strength, the, the, the thing that makes you stronger. Absolutely. Move into your anxieties. And I like to add into there the piece of compassion because I mm-hmm. have so much compassion for especially the stereotypical young man who started looking mm, at yeah. porn at 11, 12, 13, right. long before the prefrontal cortex was completely formed. And, and so they right. have these real immature ways that they picked up yeah. young 
Exactly. And in a way that they really couldn't process cognitively or rationally at that stage of life. That's right. And now they're still coping in ways they learned young and we're we're angry with them for that that little child. Right, like something was impaired or something mm-hmm. or somehow they were sinful mm-hmm. rather than just a child like uncertain, afraid, felt he had something to hide, right. getting messages that this made him bad. You know, not him specifically, but hearing messages out there that you know, would make him feel that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being labeled an addict and yes. all of that. And so I I think stepping into your anxiety and having compassion for each other for the immature ways we've all learned to handle Absolutely. life, right? Right. I got on right. Instagram That's too. Okay. I When I have yes. too much going on, I find myself overeating treats. I mean, we all have exactly. our things, so. Yep, Absolutely. All right, Jennifer. Do you think that men feel shame because they're typically known as the high desire partner? Or do they feel shame because they have to act like they're the high desire partner? That's a good question. I've never thought about that. Just a minute. Do they feel shame because they are or because they have to act like it? I don't know if either of those things would necessarily make one feel ashamed. I think the way that men can feel shame is if they feel sexually rejected. Um, That's one way. So, you know, if they're just being tolerated, Mm. not received. Wow. Yeah. Just being tolerated. Yeah. And a lot of men who feel only tolerated actually become higher desire. Right. Because what they're doing is they're looking for you, to, you know, wife, to receive me, accept me, desire me. Are you going to want me tonight? You know, so it's coming not out of a, an embodied, comfortable, I really like you. And I, I mean, it is sometimes for people, of course, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying that for the person who never feels desired, he can often then start to feel a lot of shame and get inflated in his desire because he's trying to answer a question with his wife through sex. Right. That may also make him start to feel ashamed of his high desire because it's never what she wants. And he, she, he can start to feel like, I'm just an intrusion on her li- otherwise happy life. Mm-hmm. So why can't I just get rid of this altogether? And it makes me want to look at porn and it makes me want things that I can't you know, handle. So I'm sure that that rejection can fuel a sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Now, some people handle that by just like not talking about it. Others handle it through a kind of anger and resentment and hostility and entitlement even. So there's, there's you know, how one handles that is a big deal. But that's often a source of shame. I think it's also the idea that good men should not ever inconvenience a woman. Right. right? Like I think we have a lot of this paternalism that we give to men, a kind of benevolent patriarchal role that you should, women are good and innocent and just a little bit above the children. And, and, and so therefore, mm. why should I defile her with my sexual urges? <laughs> <laughs> and so I think if you see women that way, you do feel predatory. Right. You can feel a lot of, even if she does receive you, you know, or, or is willing because she wants to be a good wife, to feel like you're doing something lesser, something carnal, something, you know, not godly. So I think what men are so often looking for in their partners, in their wives, is this, that she desires it. Mm-hmm. Because then it's a validation 
that I'm not doing something to you. You don't want done unto you, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that you are being blessed. Like I think for men, some of their peak sexual experiences are about feeling received of being able to give a woman pleasure, right? right? Because then it's like, I'm actually able to love her through my sexuality. I'm actually able to make her life better. And men will, good men, will sacrifice all kinds of time and energy to give a woman pleasure. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to mention that they sacrifice economically and they sacrifice for the benefit of the family. And men often, that sort of strong masculine is doing a lot of sacrifice. But that they are willing, you know, women will say, oh, I feel so guilty. It takes so long. And mm -hmm. But most women are married to men that, I, I will take the time. I want you to have pleasure. I want to give you pleasure. I want you to blossom into that joy. Right. And so I think if women can grow into the worthiness of receiving that kind of pleasure, can allow themselves to be that kind of feminine magnificence that mm -hmm. the feminine often is, well, then it can actually bless the partnership, bless that, the mutuality of the sexual relationship and alleviate men of this, anxiety that is culturally given to them. Right. I've often wondered what it would be like if we could just invite women to pursue and to be the pursuer more mm. and let the men hold still, you know, that old mm. theory of withdrawal pursuer. And if, yes. if the pursuer holds still, in theory, the person withdrawing is going to turn around and engage. So mm -hmm. I yeah. think sexually, if the pursuer in this stereotype instance that we're talking about, if the pursuer, mm. the man, were to hold still a minute and not have that heightened anxiety here to pursue. And That's right. I, I believe that women a lot of times would start engaging and get, get, yeah, have the sure. opportunity to initiate. Yeah. Well, and also some of the anxiety, like, wait a minute, if you're not, because sometimes, you know, the lower desire person can give the higher desire person the responsibility for making it all totally, happen because totally. they like the underexposed position of being low desire. And, and so, yes, I think that if that higher desire person is not always activated, now, I don't mean that they should manipulate. I mean, they should self-regulate the higher desire person and not always be in pursuit of something, you know, trying to grab at something that's not being offered it does give more psychological space for it to be offered, but also how to say it, it, it means the lower desire person has to, in order for the relationship to work, step into their position. They, they have to meet the partnership. It also requires self-regulation because you can hide in the one down. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can hide in low desire. I would also just say it's less about initiating than it is about desiring. So, you know, I think it's true when couples both really enjoy sex, both people, you know, you, you almost lose track of who's initiating, who's because it doesn't really matter. You both like it. That's the big deal. So you don't even think about who's initiating so much as the fact that you both like to be there. What's more difficult is sort of mapping the other person is tolerating, is not invested, mm -hmm. is not engaged, is not really seeing this as an important thing that matters. And, and, you know, women have often been told they should be sexual for men, you know, so he doesn't exactly. stray, blah, 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 keep him happy, then, you know, all that stuff. And so they don't want to be there because it's, it's like, it's a know, job. Only, you like to, you can say, exactly, it's a job. And nobody wants to do a job sexually. Mm -hmm. It just, is just too personal. 
So if it's though, like, I want to create a good sexual relationship too. I want something that's worth desiring with my spouse. I want something that we both enjoy. Well, then you're stepping in and an active participant and collaborative in creating something that is mutually beneficial. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. So as we kind of wrap up today, I wonder, is there anything that you think would be really helpful for us to add to this conversation that we haven't really, I know you teach whole courses on this, and so you have Mm. a wealth of information around male sexual shame, but is there something really critical that we need to make sure to talk about? So uh, what I would say is we want to be really careful with how we talk to young men and young women about sexuality, because oftentimes in our effort to help them obey the law of chastity or to help them be careful in their decision-making, we fill them up with fear and that fear goes badly. It actually interferes with the integration of sexuality. Mm-hmm. I remember my my oldest child when he was 11, you know, came down to the kitchen, I was preparing food and he's like, mom, why do people put naked pictures of themselves on the internet? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, why do you ask? You know? so I'm like trying to stay all calm. And he's like, well, I've been looking at things for the past half hour. I mean, he was very honest about it. How sweet. So we, you know, we, I talked, we talked to him about it. I went and kind of looked at what he'd been seeing. We put more filters on. We did things to kind of protect the kids more, but just talk to him in a way that was accepting, normalizing, and really asking him how he felt about it. And he said it kind of scared him actually, but these were, this were things that he was having some difficulty making sense of. But I don't think he left that feeling like there's something wrong with me. Then he went to start going to Young Men's about a year later and asked if we could go on a walk. And he was like, I didn't know that made me a bad person. I didn't know. Like, so he had started, and these were good leaders, honestly, they were, but he really did take it in that this was a terrible thing and that he had done a terrible thing. And so he had to make sense of like, did I think of him as terrible and so on? And thankfully he trusted me enough right. to come ask me. Right. I mean, because what if he hadn't asked me? I mean, I don't know, that scares me like to not realize he was taking in those ideas. And for me to be able to show him my mind about it and to say, I think that's the wrong idea. That just made you a normal boy. It just made you normal to be curious. I was curious, dad was curious. You know, it's just part of being human. And I don't think it's good for you. I don't think it's a good way to use your time, you know, but that's different than that makes you flawed. So I was able to correct that and for him to just be more at peace with himself as a sexual Mm -hmm, being. mm -hmm. So we just have to be really careful that we don't out of our desire and our own fear, you know, because a lot of parents are afraid of their kid's sexuality. It's like, dang it, they're an adolescent, you know. (laughs) And I mean, there's some good reason why, why we get a little nervous, okay. But you have to be careful that sort of this kind of fear is not driving your interactions with them. Instead, a long goal, the long game, what are you reaching towards? And why would it matter for you to manage your impulses? Why would it matter for you to be careful about how you relate to your sexuality and to other people? Because you want this other good thing. And Believing in it enough yourself as a parent or a teacher matters because they can track if you actually believe there's something better. You know, you know, I was once last year asked to teach the young women about the love chastity. And then last minute they pulled the young men into the class. So I was teaching all of them. And, you know, I'm not their parent. I'm, I'm a professional and so on. 
But those kids were so, I was normalizing, I was giving them the long game, you know. Right. And I was talking about kind of what were some of the challenges they faced and they were all over it. They did not want that class to end, I could tell. Oh, I mean, I that leaders in the back were a little anxious maybe. But, <laughs> but uh, That crazy Jennifer. <laughs> exactly. Who got her in here? But anyway, <laughs> but you know, so, but it, but it, you know, you could tell that they are looking for a way to make sense of their sexuality and to create a good life with it. They really do want that. Mm -hmm. And helping them see how self-control fosters future freedom, fosters future joyfulness, that helps a lot. And so the more that we can give them guidelines, it doesn't mean, you know, you don't have rules and restrictions because you don't want to give your kids more agency than they can handle. Mm -hmm. But you want them to have the long view. You want to embody that as best you can and help them sort out their goal is around self-regulation around these feelings. Right. So I think that's just very important. So similarly, what I would say is like the course that I did for men is very much, is, I call it the art of loving because, you know, men, I, I want men to sort of address or understand some of the cultural messages they may have gotten either from well-intentioned teachers or parents but to understand how it may be shaped, how they relate to sexuality, whether that's from a shame place or an entitled place or, mm. you know, or turning to porn and to better understand the difficulty with self-acceptance, but to do exactly that, to give them this longer view of how they can love, bless, invest in a partner, invest in a wife and care for her as a human being, as a friend, but also give sexually in this in this beautiful way. And like we can, how to say it, when these, when the body is actually blessing our lives, when we can use the sensuality, our God-given sensuality to make our lives richer, more joyful, to be connected to thriving, to be connected to loving, right? Well, then we can not be so afraid of it. Like when we're just afraid it's going to take us down, it's very hard to imagine an ease in a beautiful sexual relationship, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the more you trust yourself to create good with it, the better lover you become, right? The more at peace you become, the more it's easy to be with you. There's a difference between, you know, when we teach men to be ashamed of their sexuality, we, we compromise them. When we teach them that sexuality is a good thing, but what they do with it matters, right? Well, you, you teach them to become trustworthy with sexuality. Mm -hmm. And that's very attractive. Yes very attractive, right? Because they're mm -hmm. not ashamed of sexuality, but they use it for good. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because uh, Gottman, I was just teaching this this week in uh, my marriage enhancement class, that Gottman really says when men become trustworthy, their wives are going to invest much more in the sexual uh, aspect of the relationship. It is so true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just saying this to my husband this morning because I, I'm on another podcast. I was being asked about a, more, a romantic moment, you know, but the thing is, I was like, the thing that actually always turns me on, <laughs> just to be candid for a moment, is watching my husband do something that I know is not about trying to prove anything to me. He's just doing it because he knows it matters to me, because he cares about me. And I see him doing it just like off, you know, without knowing it's being seen. That's like, this person's invested in me. Mm -hmm. He cares about me and my happiness. And that's just like, why wouldn't I be fully open here? Why wouldn't I, right, exactly. let this person love me wholeheartedly? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, it's always a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tammy. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.